Good stuff. Can I get an amen in the house? Amen. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard it too. It's all good. All right. Um, so if there was a, a scripture, let's just say that, that, that someone came and barged into your house and said, hey, we're going to take you to a far, far off place and you're never going to see uh, anything ever again. Uh, you're never going to get another book for the rest of your life. Uh, you can rip out one page of your Bible and you can take that with you. Uh, but for the rest of your life, that's the only thing that you're going to be able to read is one page out of your Bible. Do you know what page you would pick if you could only rip one page out of your Bible and come back to and read it for the rest of your life? Think about that for a little bit, okay? If there was only one page you could rip out and read, what would it be? Now, that's a good question. I mean, it kind of presses us to think a little bit. Sometimes we take this book for granted. At least I do. We just think it's always going to be there. And when we think about the possibility of not ever having it, that might change our, our mind on that. I think that for me, close to the top of the list would be Ephesians chapter 3. And this prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians as he writes this prayer from under house arrest in Rome to this fledgling little church in Asia Minor in Ephesus and likely a letter that circulated in the surrounding area. This is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. When I look at this prayer, I don't feel like I have fully lived into it yet. It's like this high bar that just, it's a standard that stays up there. And it's worth coming back to again and again and again and again. If you prayed this prayer every day for the rest of your life, you would be a better person. You would be more fit. You would know where you are in the universe and in God's creation and in God's world. If there was a prayer to be cut out and posted on your mirror every morning, this would be a good one. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So Paul kicks it off and he says, for this reason. So he's already, he's already blowing and going. For what reason? What, what reason is he talking about? Well, in order to get to the answer to that, you have to back up uh, about 15 verses at least all the way back into chapter 2, which says something like this. It says, for through Jesus, we both have access to one in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The backdrop for this whole chapter, for this whole book, for the Apostle Paul is the Old Testament. And for this image, the backdrop is the temple. The temple is this place where God dwells. Go all the way back to the Israelites in the Exodus out of Egypt. God commands them to build this tent 
which is a tabernacle. And it's this portable worship station that's always in the middle of the people. It grounds them in their identity. And they're always to be around the center, which is God, who's in the tabernacle. And God tabernacles with them, meaning He dwells with them and He goes with them. And they journey along with God out in the middle of nowhere till they finally come into this land that God had previously promised to them called the promised land. And when they get there, they set up a temple in the same pattern as the tabernacle. Because it's the same God who rescued them out of Egypt. It's the same God who was with them in the wilderness. And it's the same God with them in the promised land. But now it's a more permanent structure. And so they can put some brick and mortar to it rather than just a tent. And it's called the temple. All of the dimensions here, God takes a lot of time to spell out to them in the book of Exodus. Takes several chapters of reading and understanding those dimensions. And then there's a lot of press later on given to the building of the temple. This is a big deal. The temple is the place where God, God's presence is at its max. If you want the maximum presence of God, that's where you go. It's been uh, said that the temple is where heaven and earth come together. It's, it's the, the veil between heaven and the veil between earth really get pulled back in the midst of the temple in the holy of holies and because of that reason it was kind of an off-limits place so when paul says that you church are being built together by god to be a dwelling place for him he is saying the temple is no longer a building the temple is now a people He's also saying in the letter to the Ephesians, this is actually the mystery is that this is actually God's plan all along. That God from the beginning and the foundation of the world predestined that he would form a people and in those people his spirit would dwell. They would be the temple and that would be a group of people whose foundation is Jesus Christ himself. We call this a high ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is simply a kind of a theological term for how we understand what the church is. Is the church just this convenient place to go and a convenient group of people to get together with every now and then so I can continue to work out my individual relationship with God? Well, that's part of what it is, but that's not a high ecclesiology. That's a low ecclesiology. A high ecclesiology is an understanding of the church as something that God has fashioned. It's not just a man-made institution, but it's a God-created community. In fact, God calls the church His body. With Christ as the head, the church is His body. How great is it that we have an identity as God's holy people, the church, an identity that doesn't come from ourselves, but comes from above. We are a priestly nation. We are God's chosen ones. We are adopted sons and daughters, the ones that he has made covenant with, the ones through whom he wants to bless the world. That's God's will. It's His design. It's, the, it's, it's, it's as much of a part of the laws of physics or the laws of nature is that God designed the church to bear witness to who God is to the entire creation above and around us. 
The problem, however, is that throughout history, we, the church, have often lost our sense of identity. We've lost our sense of what it means to be God's people, and we don't, therefore, know how to be in the world or who we are. In this vacuum, in this lack of identity, we tend to settle. We tend to settle not for a top-down identity that comes from God, but from a bottom-up identity that comes from the best that us human beings can pull together, kind of like the Tower of Babel. Just kind of trying to figure it out from the bottom up. And so we settle for things like being a part of a political party as our greatest identity or being a, a part of a certain nation as our deepest and greatest identity. These are not necessarily bad things, but they're not the main thing. And so Paul offers up this prayer, a prayer that we as God's church probably need to hear today more than than in a long time. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's such a dense prayer, but there's two words that stick out to me in this prayer. The first word that sticks out to me is the word power. What comes to your mind when you think of the word power? The Greek word for power is dunamis. We got a couple of words that we get out of that word dunamis. One is the word dynamite. It's really good when you're taking Greek class in seminary to make those connections because it really helps you to remember those words. The other one's dynasty, okay? Dunamis, dynasty, dynamite, the sense of power. What comes to your mind when you think of power? Do you have a positive reaction or a negative reaction? Power itself is not a positive or negative word, but depending on your life experience, you will think of it in one way or the other. One, one thing I think of when I hear the word power is, is like a power tool, and most people who have, who have worked with power tools, there's this sense of, of satisfaction. You know, if, if you have just used a handsaw for a long time and, and you're just sweating and dying and, and running out of gas, but then all of a sudden you get a power saw, man, it feels good, doesn't it? Mm-mm. Love the power. The problem is that power saw that can cut through wood can also cut through your finger, can it? Power can go either way. Sometimes we think of power in terms of positions and of people. And while many people have stewarded the powerful positions they have had in the world, 
uh, with some decency. We tend to remember the bad times, don't we? Because that's, that's the times that's hard to forget. Throughout history, there is no shortage of examples of what evils a person can do when they have too much power. Our very country's democratic form of government is set up to safeguard from any one person having too much power. Many people have suffered personally from others who've had too much power in that personal relationships. Lord Acton in 1867 wrote to a, a letter to a bishop in England. He says that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We kind of have this ambiguous relationship with power, don't we? But there's another word in this letter of this prayer that sticks out. And that word is love. Well, strangely, these two words that are intermingled in this prayer, they sometimes don't seem to go together. We tend to think of power as being something that's strong and mighty, and sometimes we think of love as being something that's little and weak. What's the relationship between these two? In other words, we might think of it in terms of when we think of power, we think of people who have the love of power. And we think of another phrase switched back around. Is there such a thing as the power of love? What's the relationship between power and love? Well, one of the lies that is out there in the world is that love has little to do with power. And that power has little to do with love. And yet here we are, as God's people, testifying to both the power of God and to the love of God. We sing it in our songs. It's in the lyrics. We celebrate it when we break this bread. Somehow, in the midst of a world that tends to push those two in separate ways, we are those people who hold them together. Power and love. How do we get to that place? Well, the good news is that at the end of the day, the God of power is also the God of love. Or you could say the God who is love just happens to be in charge. And that, my friends, is as good news as it gets. Because one of the deepest fears, I think, in the world today is that whoever is ultimately in charge is not good. And that's just not true. And if anybody knows that, and if anybody is called to live out their lives to testify to that truth, it's the church. Why? Because we have someone who has modeled both of those for us. When we can come to that place in our life where we believe that God is both loving and powerful, we are going to have a whole lot of peace. 
Jesus came into the world and many expected him as the job description of the Messiah was to be in the day. They expected him to lead a revolution that would take on power for himself and overthrow whatever powers that be, in this case the Roman government and anyone else who was in the way of Israel becoming top dog in the world. Well, Jesus disappointed those expectations. He said, you are not to lord it over the Gentiles. I am here to be a servant among you. And then Jesus went on testifying about God's kingdom. Putting on display a different kind of power. The power to heal the sick. The power to give sight to the blind. The power to set free the prisoner. The power to raise the dead. What kind of power is this? And then we come to the mind-blowing truth of it all that still rocks our categories. Jesus' greatest act of love is when He became the most powerless. When he gave his life up on a cross, he laid down all power and gave himself up. He did so as an act of surrender to his loving Father. Because he believed that God was good, because he believed his Father was loving, and because he believed that his father had all things still in his grasp, Jesus was willing to give his life away. And this act of becoming powerless was his greatest act of love. Consequently, this greatest act of love made room for God's greatest act of power. The power of the resurrection. The power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's power. That's, that's inside-out power, isn't it? That's not outside-in, top-down power, the powers of this world. That's the power of God inside of us. I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being with the power of God. Likewise, as God's holy church, if we want that kind of power, then trying to go get it and grab for it in whatever ways that the world offers it to us, if that's all we're focused on, we are so going to miss the power of Christ. We're so going to miss the kingdom of God. We're simply going to be living and striving to be the, the best tower of Babel that this world can be. But if we do what Jesus says, where he says the last will be first, the least of these is the greatest of these. Those who lay down their lives will gain it. Once, once we see all that in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and giving his life, 
on a cross and the resurrection, it all begins to make sense. Once we kind of let go of thinking of power in terms of what this lo- world thinks of power, and even, even letting go a little bit of the very hazy and ambiguous ways that our world thinks of love, then we can really begin to see how God is allowing it all to work. Paul says, I pray that you would be strengthened with power. And in the same breath, he says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love. What would your life look like if you were rooted and grounded in love and if you had the power of Christ inside of you? Those are really the same thing. Because the all-powerful God is the God who is love. And that's a prayer that's worth praying every day for the rest of our lives. And because of that, because of that, we can finish out that prayer when Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could think or ask. What have you asked of God in your life? He wants to do more. And He wants to do so according to the power at work within us. And finally, we see that Jesus, who humbled Himself, By becoming obedient to the point of death because he gave up his life. God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. If we humble ourselves, God will raise us up. May we be those people who let go of our lives that God would give us real life. In His kingdom, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray.